Welcome back. In this last video, we will summarize Lewis' discussion of, of types of miracles that we find in the last two chapters, and then we'll take a glance at Lewis' final rhetorical move in the epilogue of this book we've been looking at, Lewis' book Miracles. For Lewis, it is precisely our capacity to see types of miracles in the Bible that shows that they're not arbitrary divine tricks. Uh, Lewis, who was an, an expert in literature, uh, the, the typical miracle stories one finds among the myths and legends of man involve magic powers whose effects are rather random. For instance, think of the difference between causing a man's eyes to see very far, perfecting something that is natural about the man, versus giving a man, you know, kind of laser vision. <laughs> Comic book powers have the flavor of the magic we find in many of the old stories. And the the kinds of things that it affects in nature are not the kinds of things nature affects in herself. Uh, you know, uh, nature, nature produces good eyesight, not laser eyes. And the, the miracles we discover in divine revelation, on the other hand, quote, show invasion by a power which is not alien. They are what well, they are what might be expected to happen when she is invaded not simply by a god, but by the god of nature, by a power which is outside her jurisdiction, not as a foreigner, but as a sovereign. They proclaim that he who has come is not merely a king, but the king, her king, and ours, end quote. What Lewis is arguing here is that the miracles we find in scripture are not random exercises of magic, but rather reflect the values we already find written into the very face and structure of things in creation itself. That is, they have the same character of ordinary nature because they have the same author. For Lewis, Christian miracle claims are particularly distinguished from those of other faiths because of, quote, their organic connection with one another and with the whole structure of the religion they exhibit, end quote. And so he goes on to say, quote, in Christianity, the more we understand what God, what God it is who is said to be present and the purpose for which he is said to have appeared, the more credible the miracle become, the miracles become. That is, that is why we seldom find the Christian miracles denied except by those who have abandoned some part of the Christian doctrine. The mind which acts, asks for a, a non-miraculous Christianity is a mind in process of relapsing from Christianity into mere religion, end quote. It is worth pausing once again to admire Lewis' creative mind and approach to things. In a way, he's bringing the fruits of a of a literary critic to the understanding of natural revelation. To read literature is to read a text and to deeply understand and internalize the mind of an author. Lewis is able to use these very skills to look at the text of the world and of scripture to see what is peculiar and striking in them and what is particularly resonant between them in a way that we might easily miss if we did not possess these skills. Lewis divides his subsequent discussion of types of miracles into two chapters. There are miracles of the old creation and miracles of the new creation. Explicating this distinction, Lewis writes, quote, I contend that in all these miracles alike, the, the incarnate God does suddenly and locally something that God has done or will do in general. Each miracle writes for us in small letters something that God has already written or will write in letters almost too large to be noticed across the whole canvas of nature. They focus at a particular point either God's actual or his future operations on the universe. 
when they reproduce operations we have already seen uh, uh, on the large scale, they are miracles of the old creation. When they focus those which are still to come, they are miracles of the new. Not one of them is isolated or anomalous. Each carries the signature of the God whom we know through conscience and from nature. Their authenticity is attested by the style, end quote. <laughs> so for Lewis, miracles that speak in the voice of the current created order or, order, or miracles of the old creation, as he calls them, these miracles are a sort of intensification of processes we already see at work in the natural order. But the Christian claim has always been that God's original intention for mankind was that his dominion should be enhanced from its Edenic state. That is, God's goal was for Adam to mature and to inherit a mode of dominion over the world through a participation in the powers of heavenly life. Miracles of the new creation are those miracles that anticipate that eschatological life in the present moment. Each of these has, has three subsets. Miracles of the old creation have sort of three instantiation in Lewis's taxonomy, and miracles of the new creation have three instantiations in Lewis's taxonomy. Miracles that are fitted to the old creation are those that involve, what he, in Lewis's version, fertility, healing, and destruction. Miracles that are fitted to the new creation are those that involve dominion over the organic, miracles of what he calls reversible, and final, finally, miracles of perfecting or glorification. So let's look, look at that first step for a moment, fertility, healing, and destruction. Lewis' point with these is that each involve a sort of intensification or a speeding up or a performance of an activity that is already occurring in creation in a minor key. Wine, for instance, does partially come from water. And Jesus, when he turns water into wine, sort of speeds up the process, as it were. Similarly, the body, we now know, uh, contains all sorts of healing properties that Christ could but stimulate by the power of his word, preventing in a particular person whatever was making their body unhealthy. Uh, even the virgin birth, which is, uh, you know, s such a stumbling block to modern people, in a certain way is no more stunning as such than the whole creation, which is suspended, if you recall, atop nothing, uh, in which ordinary fatherhood and generation has come into being over a long series of steps. However, whether you think that's from the Big Bang to the, the, the manifestation of fatherhood in creation, or you think that came about some other way. But the point is the voice of creation and the voice of those miracles is the same voice. Uh, and, and the second class of miracles, however, dominion over the inorganic, miracles of reversal, like resurrection, you know, re turning on death into life, and in miracles of perfecting or glorification, we witness the dawn of a new age. So as Lewis puts it, quote, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different now because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened, end quote. Lewis' point is not that humans had never believed in, you know, something like post-mortem survival. Clearly, some peoples did believe in post-mortem survival. What is different about the resurrection is that it involves the reversal and the defeat of death as such. 
Christ's resurrection is not like that of Lazarus, who presumably died after he was raised, even if Lazarus is a kind of sign and signature of what will be the resurrection. The heavenly reality in which Jesus' body participate has put him beyond subjection to death, beyond even the possibility of death. The new body of Jesus cannot die. And so Lewis writes, quote, the body which lives in that new mode is like and yet unlike the body his friends knew before the execution. It is different related to space and probably to time, but by no, no means cut off from all relation to them. It can perform the animal act of eating. It is so related to matter as we know it that it can be touched, though at first it had better not be touched. <laughs> it has also a history before it, which is in view from the first moment of the resurrection, is presently going to become different or goes somewhere else. That is why the story of the ascension cannot be separated from that of the resurrection. All the accounts suggest that the appearance of the risen body came to an end. Some describe an abrupt end about six weeks after the death, end quote. For Lewis, the, the resultant picture we get of Christ's work is not that of unmaking, but of remaking especially when we grasp the relationship between the resurrection and the ascension, the, the, the body fitted for the new world in relation to Christ's actual entrance into that world in the ascension, we see that, quote, the very way in which this new nature begins to shine, the, the very way in which this new nature begins to shine in has a certain affinity with the habits of the old nature. In nature, as we know her, things tend to be anticipated. Nature is fond of, of false dawns, of, of precursors. And then Lewis goes on to say, quote, so here also we, we get law before gospel, animal sacrifices foreshadowing the great sacrifice of God to God, uh, the Baptist before the Messiah, and those miracles of new creation which come before the resurrection, end quote. Consider the example of Jesus walking on water as an example of uh, a kind of new creation miracle that occurs before and in anticipation of the resurrection. Quote, this is what Lewis says, quote, in the walking on the water, we see the relation of spirit and nature so altered that nature can be made to do whatever spirit pleases. This new obedience of nature is, of course, not to be separated even in thought from spirit's own obedience to the father of spirits, Apart from that proviso, such obedience by nature, if it were possible, would result in chaos. The evil dream of magic arises from finite spirits longing to get that power without paying the price. The evil reality of lawless applied science, which is magic's son and heir, is actually reducing large tracts of nature to disorder and sterility at this very moment, end quote. Is a fascinating comment. And in a certain way, what we see is the new nature is an intensification of the relationship we already experience between mind and matter, where the center of gravity progressively moves toward mind as the master of materiality. Currently, in a, in a reciprocal state of interdependence, Lewis imagines that the new creation will involve a kind of enlargement of man's capacities to use nature for the sake of conscious mind. And indeed, as he has argued earlier in the book, this is to the benefit in raising up of rather than the, to the diminishment of nature. That is to say, if we're following the father of spirits, the father of nature, 
And here Lewis notes the similar pretensions then of certain trends in, in modern science and technology, maybe the, the negative photocopy trends, if you could put it that way. In fact, in, in Lewis's novel, That Hideous Strength, he really captures in narrative form these things quite elegantly. Lewis was, was very aware that the ultimate goal of much modern technoscience is the freeing of man from the limitations of the body and the achievement of a kind of conscious life that contained a new relationship of power over creation, but apart from submission to the father. Lewis points out, however, that to seek that kind of life apart from submission to the will of God would be destruction for the cosmos rather than the raising up of the cosmos. You can recall the fact that God, in fact, banished Adam from the garden precisely to minimize his destruction through subjecting him to the forces of death outside of the garden. It's actually Adam's dying, in a way, that sort of protects the world from Adam and his race. Uh, and crucially, the goal is not to be freed from the body, as it is in many modern movements, as though it were a kind of holding us back, but rather to have a redeemed and perfected relationship to our own embodiment. This is already approximated in, in cultivating a health, healthy relationship to our bodies in the present era. And so Lewis later writes, quote, who will trust us with the true wealth if we cannot be trusted even with the wealth that perishes? Who will trust me with a spiritual body if I cannot control even an earthly body? These small and perishable bodies we now have were given to us as ponies are given to schoolboys. We must learn to manage, not, not that we may someday be free of horses altogether, but that someday we may ride bareback, end quote. <laughs> and so as we, as we draw this series to a close, it's worth summarizing very briefly the ground we've covered. Lewis has argued in this book, Miracles, that, that Every human experiences the invasion of the natural by the supernatural in their ordinary experiences of reason and morality. The question that becomes the question then becomes whether nature is vulnerable to irregular invasion in the form of miracles. After arguing that there is nothing about nature and nothing about God that renders nature safe from miracles, Lewis goes on in, in the later portion of the book to argue that miracles are not improper and that they are not intrinsically improbable. In order to evaluate particular miracle claims, however, Lewis argues that we need a concept of fittingness, a sense of how the particulars of, mir of a miracle claim fit into everything else that we know, whether, whether we know what, what we know about scripture or history or nature herself. Lewis has already argued that there's a, a distinct fittingness to the central miracle of the incarnation, the the major key of which all supernatural invasion is the minor key. And in the last two chapters, he has discussed the fittingness of Christian miracle claims relative to their resonance with the old creation and with the new creation, which are, as he's just shown, organically connected. And there's a large discussion of that organic connection in that, that chapter on the new creation. And yet, Lewis is not done with his piece of art. Indeed, it is the very phrase, and yet, which haunts him the most at the end of his writing. Lewis writes about the tendency of having one's mind or, or hopes opened up, followed by a sudden return to one's original outlook, in this case, the, the naturalist habit of mind and heart. So he writes, quote, it is that and yet which I fear more than any positive argument against miracles, that is, 
that soft tidal return of your habitual outlook as you close the book and the familiar four walls about you and the familiar noises from the street reassert themselves. Perhaps, if I dare suppose so much, you have been led on at times while you were reading and felt ancient hopes and fears astir in your heart have perhaps come almost to the threshold of belief. But now, no, it just won't do. Here is the ordinary, here is the real world round you again, end quote. I just love this, this quote of Lewis. Lewis realizes that he's not just arguing against our minds, but against our mental habits, their, their natural direction apart from conscious effort. You, you see, in whatever way our consciousness has been misshaped in whatever age we're in, it is the task of the mature man to detect our characteristic errors and to reshape ourselves through habit in order that our default affective and mental settings slowly begin to match the conclusions we've come to. And there are qualifications to be made there. There's a reciprocal dialogue between mind and feeling, for instance. But the ultimate ordered relation is what is distinctive about man. His, his discursive irrationality ultimately shapes what is common about him, that is his animality. Uh, it is crucial to the modern spiritual life in that sense, not to, not to uh, avoid or deny these tendencies in our mind, but to confront them directly and to work toward a healthy redirection that isn't forced, but learned and part of the maturing process. Uh, Lewis comments that this battle is, quote, precisely one of those counterattacks by nature, which on my theory, he ought to have anticipated. Your rational thinking has no foothold in your merely natural consciousness except what it wins and maintains by conquest. The moment rational thought ceases, imagination, mental habit, temperament, and the spirit of the age take charge of you again. New thoughts, until they have themselves become habitual, will affect your consciousness as a whole only while you are actually thinking them. Reasons have, reason has but to nod at his post, and instantly nature's patrols are infiltrating, end quote. Lewis goes on to point out as well that, that the same sensation of being unconvinced after reading occurs when we're reading things we know to be true, that the, that the hand that I can look at right now will one day be a skeleton, that I'm floating in one of billions of galaxies, and that someone in my neighborhood in a house not, not a mile from here uh, is going through a profound and deep crisis. All of this is plausible to me in a certain way, but its reality is distant. I don't feel it. It doesn't seem real to me, but I know that each of these things is or is likely to be real, uh, that our feelings are imperfect in their calibration to nature should make it even more obvious that our feelings might be imperfect in their calibration to supernature, to the supernatural. In a way, this is my favorite part of the book because it showcases very directly what Lewis has done with the undetectable skill of a master throughout. That is, he reads man very well. And Lewis' reading of man is not cynical or flattering. He always includes himself as sharing in the, the reactions, tendencies, and habits of his audience. And he directs us only as he directs and persuades himself. I think the enduring quality of this book is not simply its argument, which I, which I claim would be, is independently compelling, but its grasp of the modern human's relationship to the subject he's talking about. Lewis gets what is going on between man and the argument because he, because he gets what's going on between himself and the argument. And in this way, he can play a sort of mediator role. Uh, speaking for the tradition and speaking for modern man's sentiments at the same time. 
And note that he constantly leads man with men with modern sentiments through their characteristic virtues. He rarely simply dismisses the reactions, habits, and thoughts of modern persons. Rather, he recognizes their distinctive virtue, but argues that they're incomplete without other habits and virtues. And in taking this approach, he doesn't, he doesn't crush, but rather leads his intellectual opponents toward truth that is deeper than the partial truths which they already possess. And indeed, one might say that this is itself a kind of supernatural invasion. It doesn't take reading apologetics literature very long to realize that people on all sides of all, all, sides of all debates are often motivated by mere winning and tearing one another apart. Lewis, but Lewis loves his enemies and seeks to win persons in the context of having an argument. And this is just to have an, an intellectual habit that is saturated by the motivations of the gospel. That there is something supernatural about Christian love itself is indicated by a Christ comment that the world will know as people by seeing their love. Lewis, as a, as a persuader of men, then, is organically connected to Lewis loving his, his activity, his, in fact, perhaps even supernatural activity of loving his fellow humans, setting himself apart from what is very common in human debate, especially intellectual debate. To, to commend Lewis to young Christian minds, then, is not merely to commend his particular arguments or even the wise methods that he uses, but finally and ultimately to commend a heart animated by the living God through the gospel of Christ. And so that's all for us. It's been a, a pleasure and a joy to chat with you through all of these things and through this book. Best wishes to my viewers, especially you younger folks. And once more, from one human face to another, farewell.